Podcast. I'm Kelly Quinlan, joined by Jared Hallis, and we are going to talk about the Georgia Tech-Virginia game. We will touch very briefly on the ass-whooping, as Paul Johnson called it, and uh, in Clemson by Clemson. And then uh, we'll get into this Virginia game a little bit, and then maybe a quick touch on Georgia Tech basketball, which actually kicks off really uh, next week, but they uh, they start to travel out to China at the end of this week after their exhibition game which will be tonight thursday night against faulkner so uh jared kind of you were up there i was up there i'm sure it looked as bad in the stands as it did in the uh, press box uh, across it was the a little bit colder too a lot more wet so kind of what i mean wh- what were your thoughts i know how i felt about the game i didn't think they had a very good shot going in i part of me actually believes that the game was closer because of the bad weather because it slowed Clemson's offense down dramatically. Mm-hmm. And I think perhaps that kept Georgia Tech in the game versus when um, on a fast track, I feel like it could have gotten ugly. Now Tech may have scored more points in a, in a shootout kind of game, but it could have been a 40-24 kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like you said, going into I didn't really feel like we had too big of a chance to. A lot of people were talking about how we were undefeated against the spread coming into the game and – that was that was probably the first line this year that I wasn't actually too comfortable. It was a backdoor betting. cover, though, Jared. It was a yeah. backdoor cover. You're That's right. All. You're right. I wasn't too comfortable betting on that line, though. And they ended up staying inside of 14 and a half. I mean, so there's that. And I, but once again, I just I didn't think I never really thought we had too good of a chance. And like you said, uh, we might have been able to score some more points, but no one's to say that they wouldn't have scored more as well had the conditions been a little bit better. Yeah, I mean, think about the snaps. That really, in the second half. Uh, there were some pretty bad plays by Clemson offensively. They had a couple bad snaps that were juggled. And really some miraculous plays, actually. The ball just happened to bounce back to their quarterback. And yeah. they got kind of lucky there. Those could be scooping scores in other circumstances. And, you know, I mean, they're defending national champions. I'm not sure what people expect when you go and play a team like that. That Clearly, there's maybe one guy on Georgia Tech's team that would start at Clemson. So, uh, to me, when you play, I, playing them within 10 points is uh, uh, almost a quote-unquote moral victory. Right. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it, it sucks that they play them every year and Virginia Tech plays Boston College and, you know, some of these other teams play some of these real crap ball uh, Atlantic teams and Georgia Tech plays Clemson, who's been really good for a while now. So, you know, it sucks. You play them, you play Georgia every year. There's two teams that are unlike most of the ACC. And I think that, uh, you know, they did their best. They hung in the game. And now it's time to turn the page to get ready for Virginia. Quite frankly, in a lot of ways, Georgia Tech still has a chance to, to go to the ACC championship, assuming Virginia Tech knocks off Miami this weekend. You could see basically um, a situation where if Miami falls one more time, you end up in a three-way tie if Georgia Tech beats Virginia and Virginia Tech and Duke. And then blah, 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 you could end up in the AC championship. I don't know that I want to see Georgia Tech play Clemson again, but Paul Johnson and Taekwon Marshall said they want a shot at it again. So bless their hearts, and uh, (laughs) we will kind of see what happens. But, uh, you know, looking at this Virginia team, uh, obviously, on the defensive side of the ball, that's kind of been their calling card over the last couple of years since Bronco got there. And they run a 3-4 defense. They have Andrew Brown, who was like the number one player in the country uh, four or five years ago. He's really dynamic. Paul Johnson talked about him on Wednesday, said that he basically made a living in their backfield last year in the game. They have Micah Kaiser, who's a really decorated middle linebacker, a kind of tackle machine, really Productive. They have Jordan Mack, who's a, another linebacker, who's a kid Georgia Tech passed on, a legacy kid, um, that ended up bulking up to 225. He was a safety in high school, and he's turned into a decent player. But really, the, the three guys are Andrew Brown, Micah Kaiser, and then the free safety, Quinn Blanding, who's a, a machine as well. And, you know, it says a lot about Mike London's recruiting. They have, they have some talented pieces there. They just couldn't coach him up, and I think that, Broncos a much better coach. I'll be curious to see if he can get the same kind of pieces long term because their recruiting has not really been impressive so far. But this is a tough out. I mean, they're they're a tough team. They were a tough team a year ago, even though they had a crappy record. And I think that they're going to give it best shot. And 
let's face it, no coach other than Paul Johnson's won more than two games in, in Charlottesville at Georgia Tech. It's just been a real nightmare kind of a place for Georgia Tech. I think they're like three and seventeen or something forward and sixteen or something like that in the last mm-hmm. uh, since nineteen ninety up there. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, uh, it's really just. I remember a couple of times where the team would be. I think it was maybe 2012 or yeah. I think it was 2012, maybe 2011. I'm not 200 percent sure. We were six and zero. Went to Virginia, got beat, and I just really hope that this uh, this team's not going to be hanging their heads after a, a game that they never really looked good in at all. And I mean, we've had the games where we've lost on you know the heartbreaking plays, and they've they've proven to not really be, uh, I guess, hungover afterwards. But I don't know how they'll react to you know kind of getting dominated for an entire four quarters. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see kind of what happens. Um sort of long term for them uh this is sort of the tale of your kind of season falls into three chunks right so the beginning chunk of the season georgia tech they lose a very close game to to tennessee and then kind of roll through the next couple of opponents jack state and unc and and pitt and then you have you lose a game against ucf and then you beat what did who was after ucf was it um we played Miami after UCF. Yeah, so you go to go down to Miami, you lose, and then you come back here, you beat Wake Forest, and then you go down, go up to Clemson and struggle and lose again. And I say that they got dominated for four quarters, but they did win the second half. So, I mean, if you want more victories, there you go. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think everyone wanted to go home at that point in that second half. Most of the Clemson fans left uh, at halftime, which was – Helpful yeah. for me having to drive back to Atlanta after a game. But, uh, you know, it, it's going to be interesting to see. These are the kind of games that Paul Johnson's really hung his hat on and winning um, in his career at Georgia Tech, beating teams like Virginia. And then you have Duke coming up uh, in two weeks after that. These two are the two easiest games left on the schedule. You've got to win them to get yourself into a decent bowl position because, quite frankly, if – Tech win three of four right now. They have a chance to play in Orlando in a decent bowl game um, or maybe somewhere else in the the first kind of tier of ACC bowls because they'll finish in the, the top four, assuming that whoever wins the, uh, the ACC ends up in the playoff, whether it's Virginia Tech or Clemson or uh, whoever. So, you know, I, there's a lot to kind of play for. There's a lot of pride points, and really, quite frankly, this team right now should be – um, what are they? They're five, four and three. They should be, you know, six and one right now going into this game. And right. that's kind of the frustrating part. And I was talking to a buddy of mine that's a big tech fan, and he was telling me that, you know, in a lot of ways, this team seems to him to be better than last year's team. And he said in some ways they're better, especially on defense, than the 2014 team that won a lot of games but had a more favorable schedule. So that's that's where this all gets interesting, and there's a lot of things that can be done. And Georgia Tech has a nice chance to play spoiler, too, in the back half of the season here with Virginia Tech and with Georgia possibly coming into to Atlanta as the number one team in the country. So, it, you know, I think there's a lot to play for. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like if, if Georgia Tech knocked off number one Georgia? in Atlanta to spoil their basically chances of going to the college football playoffs. I mean, those are the kind of things that, that could be really interesting. There's a lot of pressure on other teams right now. And I think that if you're Paul Johnson, you just got to get your offense going, score some points. And I think the defense is good enough to keep you in a game. Yeah. I think, I mean, there's definitely still a lot to look forward to this season. I mean, as you mentioned, you have, there's still a chance that you could compete for the coastal title and, 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 possibly go get a rematch against Clemson because I mean Miami's they I mean they're undefeated still but they they just don't look good you beat a very 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 bad North Carolina team by five points this past week I think it's almost certain that they'll lose to Virginia Tech this weekend that's just how I see it and then I think they have Pitt and Virginia for their other two ACC games so and I mean, Pitt's been around done. you know Pitt's Pitt's been a team that's found their offense. So that was the problem that killed them in the first half of the season. They found sort of identity now actually as a running football team, which is interesting. And yeah. I think that could be really uh, uh, something that could 
maybe bolster them at a home game against Miami at the end of the season. With, and they're, you know, Pitt's trying to play to go to a bowl game. So that could be a really fascinating game as well, especially if Virginia Tech wins down in uh, Miami this weekend. Not to mention it's the last game of the year. So say, I mean, I'm sure if you're Miami right now, your your sides are probably set on the playoff. So if you lose to Virginia Tech this weekend, it's almost just like a kick in the chest. So for those last for that last game, I mean, against Pitt, like you said, you never know what could happen. And then yeah. again, you have Georgia at the end of the season, so you have a chance to ruin their best season in 30 years. So I mean, there's a lot to look forward to left this year. I mean, it's been it's been hard so far, but it, there's still so much left to go. Yeah, and I think there's a lot to be encouraged about with what you've seen from Georgia Tech so far, and Taquan Marshall and what he's done, and uh, Cravante Benson, who's just a sophomore, um, has been pretty impressive. You got Jerry Howard, who's a freshman, is very impressive. You get most of the A-backs back next year. You have Taquan back at quarterback. Uh, pretty much all of the offensive line will be back. Andrew Marshall was announced this week by Coach Johnson that he's going to come back for a sixth year. So or fifth year, he never redshirted. So who? Uh, that's kind of a, a bolstering thing. Add some more depth there. I think there's a lot to be encouraged about, and you got a lot of talent in the secondary. We're gonna have to replace a lot of guys after the season, but and there's a lot of pride with these guys, and they want to win. And let's face it, Kirk Benkert, the quarterback for Virginia, has been hot and cold all season. Um, mm-hmm. They have some nice pieces. Jordan Ellis is a nice piece. Um, you know, they, they have some guys who can make plays. Evan Butts, the tight ends, interesting guy. Like, there's some pieces there, but it's it's not a super dynamic offense. So if they just match up and play and don't overthink that, I think Georgia Tech can easily make a game of this and have a good chance to win up at Virginia where they've struggled. And quite frankly, if you win this game, I think you can start to carry some momentum. The Virginia Tech game will, if Virginia Tech wins and Georgia Tech wins, the Virginia Tech game should be a night game on national television, and that, that'll be huge. And Georgia Tech plays out of their minds at night at home. And then you get, you know, the last two games of the year, you go to Duke, there'll be no one there, there's no atmosphere. So <laughs> um you should be able to beat them. They'll all be in basketball mode by then anyways. And then yeah. you look at uh, Georgia at the end of the season. So, I mean, there's still a lot of opportunities out there to, to have a really good year, finish eight and three and eight and three, seven and four and have a good bowl game and be able to hang your hat on something to, to go into next year and keep your coach happy and keep him around, which is kind of what everyone wants to see right now. Cause it seems like, they're getting closer to the point where they're reloading instead of rebuilding at Georgia Tech, and that's been the biggest battle that Paul Johnson's had to fight, is to get into the situation where they have enough talent on the roster. When you lose a couple of key guys or an NFL guy here and there, you're able to turn and replace them, and that's something they're working on right now. And you know, other than Ricky June, there's not a guy on the team where I'm pointing and like, I don't know how they're going to replace that guy, like. Uh, Ricky's probably the, the toughest guy to replace right now. So if you look at kind of the whole picture of things, I think it lines up pretty well for Georgia Tech right now. And you just got to take care of business and beat a Virginia team that's very beatable. It seems like, it seems like, like you said, the whole re, we're not really rebuilding anymore. We're just kind of adding on to the town that we already have. And I know you mentioned this week, a lot of people forget that Cravante is only a sophomore. Jerry Howard's a freshman, I believe. Yeah, true uh, freshman. Yeah, uh, so, I mean, as far as that goes, we're fine. Somebody asked us how the A-backs are looking for next year. Um, I mean, you I bring think, everyone back except for J.J. Green. So Yeah, J.J. Green's the only one that's gone. So, Nate is a sophomore, Lynch is a junior, Quaysers is a junior. Yeah, so what you will see next year probably is um, you're going to see Omari Jarrett, and you will probably see one of the young guys try to get into that rotation spot that J.J. is going to vacate. Everyone else kind of slides up. The starters will probably be Quay and, and Clinton. And then you'll have Nate and then either Omari Jarrett or, uh, you know, I could see a Dante Smith or who's committed now um, from uh-huh. Columbia High School in Tennessee. He's got a lot of speed. So uh, it, it's kind of interesting. I, you know, I don't know. And I think that that's a position where they should be okay going forward. I don't know that that's going to fall off a lot. And at receiver, 
I feel like we always kind of have somebody to step over. You have Demarius Thomas when Paul first got there. Then you have Stephen Hill after him. Then you get Smelter and Waller. And then after him, Ricky became the guy. So, I, I mean, it, it is definitely a big question mark. But there's, I mean, there's a good reason to believe that we'll have somebody to step up. Yeah, it'll be interesting. So in our so we asked for some questions from the uh, Jackets Online subscribers, and the first one comes uh, is about the Clemson game, and it, this guy's wanting to know why they waited the, to run the midline until Matthew came into the game. He wasn't reading anybody. We're just double teaming the read key. MJ would just follow the B back, and it worked very well. He wasn't touched until two or three yards upfield. It wasn't like he's breaking tackles. Uh, so a couple things there. One is. At that point in the game where Matthew was doing that, they had done a lot of massive substitutions on Clemson's side. They were playing basically a second-string defensive line. Really, the only starters in the game, I think, at that point were the corners and the safeties. Um, and I think Clemson kind of relaxed a little bit. They were not blowing up the line as much. But in all fairness, Matthew Jordan's built completely differently than Taquan Marshall. Taquan Marshall's not built... At a mm-hmm. 5'10", 180 pounds to run at a 300-pound NFL defensive tackle. Right. Um, I think That's what I was going to say. I mean, you saw it a lot of times with Justin Thomas, too. You'd have Tim Byerly coming in, you know, like the goal-to-go situations inside the five with the midline. You just It's not really a play that's set for Taquan Marshall to be running, especially not at midfield and running at 300-pounders. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so the next question... What does the QB depth chart look like if Matthew Jordan's out? Um, it's uh, my personal opinion is it'll be Lucas Johnson. Um, you know, I think that Jay Jones is kind of the odd guy out in all of this right now. He doesn't know how to run the offense in a way that's um, in a way that's beneficial for everybody. You know what I'm saying? Like he's kind of an improviser and you don't, yeah. this is not the kind of offense where you can do that uh, against an elite team or a decent team. Even, I mean, Virginia's second in the, the ACC in defense. Like this is not, you're not playing Jacksonville state. Uh, so th- that's kind of where I see there. I don't know. Do you have a feeling on that? No, I kind of, I kind of thought the same thing. I'm a, I'm a fan of Jay Jones. I think he's a really talented kid, but, just right now, with at his in his youth, I feel like uh, I feel like Lucas Johnson's probably a step ahead, just as far as the option offense goes. And I mean, Jay Jones has a cannon, but you won't see. I mean, there will be no situation where he gets to show that off. Uh, well, and Jay and Jay can't throw ten yards. That's the the other problem that people don't realize. He right now struggles in short throws, touch throws. That's something that really a lot of young quarterbacks, even a guy like Jacob Beeson over in Athens, struggled with. Uh, People with big arms, a lot of times that's kind of one of the last things you see. I covered Matt Stafford over in Athens. He was like that. The touch throw stuff took time to figure out. And so he kind of tries to murder his receivers underneath, and you you definitely can't do that because – the ball is going to pop up and it's right. going to cause an interception or something. So yep. there's just a Four lot of yeah. I'm very familiar with that with uh with last year against Jacobson. Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of reasons not to 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 play a guy like that in that situation. Now, could he come in for a play or two to do one or two things? Yes, absolutely. All right, our next question is: Is Clint Lynch 100% healthy? Curious to lack of big plays this year due to scheme by defense, or him being less explosive? Clint is not 100%. He'll yeah. be the first person to tell you that. Yeah. You can see it. He, they're trying to get a number of plays out of him every game right now. Uh, he's having some issues with knees, hamstring, basically lower body. He uh, had sur- he had a procedure done on his knees last uh, spring or last winter, and I think it's he just has not fully healed from that yet. I think it's going to take him – I mean, it may be next year before you really see Clinton Lynch at 100%, and that's tough on him, but he's gotten it out and trying to play, and he can turn it on at times. It's just you can tell he doesn't have a lot of gas in the tank. I don't know if the question was being meant to say, like, the lack of big plays as a whole or the lack of big plays just from him, but it's a good that we've had a lot of guys, like a lot of new guys, I guess, step up and make some big plays. I mean, Clinton Lynch was obviously a playmaker. I think he had, like, 20-plus plays of 20 uh, plus yards last year. So, I mean, he's obviously a guy that can break one off, but 
like you said, he's definitely not 100% right now. And then um, someone wanted to know about recruiting. I don't like to talk a ton about recruiting on a free podcast. I will give some little tidbits here. Um, you know, basically the way the class sets up now with Andrew Marshall coming back is the the hard number is 18 right now. They're at 16 uh, scholarships. The last two hard spots would be uh, an offensive lineman and a defensive lineman. Then they probably take another offensive lineman or defensive lineman and an athlete. So you're looking at probably a class of 21 maybe uh, right now. Then there'll be attrition. And kind of the difference this year is with the second signing period, um, the the way things are going to work for, for Georgia Tech is they're going to try to get all their commitments signed right in December. And then with attrition and the remaining spots, they're going to try to target guys that are falling through the cracks, that are maybe, you know, wanted to go to Alabama or something like that. They didn't have a spot for them. There's going to be a lot of these guys kind of floating around. And several Alabama's kind of taking the same approach, actually. They're holding a spot or two for January to see kind of what's available for them and to, to be able to – also, look at kids that maybe blossomed as seniors in high school. Georgia Tech's done a nice job under Paul Johnson of finding a Zach Lasky or um, P.J. Davis or someone like that in the back half of the recruiting cycle. Kenny Cooper's another guy they found who's mm-hmm. a starting center now. So I think that that's going to be something to watch as well going down the line. Um, you know, really probably the biggest need to me, Looking at the big picture is they could really use a defensive end who could come in and play immediately and play meaningful snaps. I'm not Julius Welshoff who committed from Germany. I'm not sure if he's going to be ready to to handle that, having really just started to learn to play the game. But um, maybe they can figure out a way to get Justice Stingle some snaps at rush end. They're going to mm-hmm. need one of their complementary guy to to go with. I'm resaying him more, and then probably Antoine Owens at the strong side end spot next year, or or they may move Des back out there, Desmond Branch. So there's a lot of kind of moving pieces of this, and I think it just kind of depends on what what the coaches here come December, January, from the the players that are on the edge of graduating. And the guys I'm talking about are people like Jake Stickler, who's a redshirt junior, who's playing now, but could just opt to graduate and go either play somewhere else or start his professional career because right now he's kind of a a quasi-starter. Those are the guys that you have to figure out what they're going to do, what their plan is. And those conversations are going on now as well, but a lot of times the kids aren't really 100% sure until the end of the semester. So we're going to have to sit tight on that one. Right. And I don't know. Like you said, it's a free podcast, so you don't want to kind of leak too much stuff. So uh, here's another kind of thing. Um, someone wants to know what Todd Stansberry's working on with timeline and numbers as much as I'm aware. Uh, I think they're talking about adding staff. Um, again, not something I want to super get into. I've kind of gotten into it as far as I can um, on the website. but. And if you want to check out some of the mailbags, I've kind of broken down some of this stuff um, if you're a subscriber to Jackets Online. But ultimately, I think they're going to add probably three positions to the recruiting staff. Um, they're going to probably add like one of those kind of graphics um, kind of guru people that make all those cool edits and stuff and have someone doing that kind of thing in the background for them, um, kind of a graphic artist type person. And I think they're going to add two more kind of scouts, essentially is what you would call them, um, to, to help with recruiting. And really one of the things Paul Johnson talked about even this week uh, as press conference is they need to do a better job of nationally recruiting, using their brand. And that's something that Stanford, that's school that tech fans love to bring up, they're excellent at using their brand nationally. The further you get away from the Atlanta area, the more popular and more respected the Georgia Tech name is. You get away from all of the, the high school coaches and who grew up UGA fans or went to UGA, and you get into, and trust me, I've been in hundreds of high school locker rooms in the state of Georgia, and there are a lot of Georgia fans uh, that don't really help the school when it comes to recruiting their kids. And so you get kind of a situation where some coaches are pushing guys away from Georgia Tech. 
there's a lot of fear of the academic side of it in this state. You know, obviously Georgia's not one of the top uh, academic. Uh, um, I'm trying to think of the word. What I'm looking for, Jared. In terms These of these kids are having to take calculus one as soon as they get to tech, and a lot of people aren't really wanting to do that. So that's kind of a something that has to go along with it. No, because most of the kids are, even like myself, we're just trying to get away with just taking trig and not pre-calculus in high school. Right. And, um, you know, that that's one of those things where if you get into Washington, D.C. or New York or Chicago or other areas, even down into Florida, Jacksonville has been really kind to Georgia Tech, uh, Tampa. It, it carries a lot more weight. People have a lot more respect for, for Georgia Tech outside of the local area. And it kind of sucks that's how, that's how it is, but that's how it is. So <clears throat> they're trying to, to, to bolster uh, their abilities in those areas and help kind of support the, the coaches that are there now in terms of uh, their recruiting. Uh, quarterback for next season. Uh, I, like- know about. I thought that was kind of interesting. It, Seems to me like they have a quarterback right now. I don't know about yeah, you. that's kind of what I was thinking too. I mean, I think Taquan Marshall just basically solidified his spot as a starter, so I don't think there'll be too much of a competition headed into next season. Uh, I mean, is Matthew Jordan a senior this year? Is he, so, <clears throat> so I think that might be what this guy's alluding to. Uh, Matthew is a redshirt junior. He graduates or has graduated. Yeah, I think he's already graduated. And so. Um, but my understanding is he wants to do some post-grad stuff at Georgia Tech, so he may stick around. I don't know. They haven't told us the severity of whatever's going on with him. Paul Johnson just said it's not a complete – he didn't totally re-injure himself, and not, he's not out for months. I, my understanding from talking to some people around the program is that he's probably out a few weeks, you know, um, what he decides to do long term, I, I don't know, and that's a conversation that Paul Johnson, I'm sure, is going to have with Matthew after the season. Does Matthew want to go somewhere and try to start for a year? Does he want to play another position at Georgia Tech? I think that's actually more likely. Uh, the most likely scenario in all of this may be that Matthew just decides he wants to play receiver or a back or whatever, and then you end up with, you know, Taquan. Lucas Johnson, Jay Jones, and Tobias Oliver. And then in that scenario, I would imagine Georgia Tech will sign a quarterback in this class late. Uh, there's a couple guys that are recruiting there that could, could fit that bill. And then, you know, what happens there? Does Jay Jones stick around? Does Lucas stick around? Those are kind of interesting questions that the, only those kids know right now, and it's not kind of my place to get in the middle of that, especially during the season. Uh, that's more of a... Uh, a discussion that we would have probably come mid-December, um, kind of if anything's going on, if there's any smoke with these kids wanting to leave. I'm not, I've not had the vibe that I got in 2013 with Valley where he was openly kind of ready to leave and telling right. his friends. There's no one really quite going that far. There's guys that are, you know, these guys are all competitors. They want to play. That's the thing that I think people get lost in the shuffle of all of this. If you're Jay Jones, you've sat for two years on the bench. He's never probably sat in his life on the bench. That's a tough situation to be in, especially if he's number three this week. You know how, and that's a tough thing on Paul too, balancing those egos. Balance, and to me, as much as people love Jay Jones, I think Lucas Johnson has the most upside in terms of running the offense and being. I think Lucas Johnson could play in the NFL. I think he's got that level of ability inside he's of got him. Size too. Yeah, so I think long term he's the sort of heir apparent to me to Taquan. Um, I just it'll be interesting to see kind of how that dynamic plays out, and but that's something we can't really even sort of even figure out at this point in the game. I think that's something that goes on in the spring. Uh, someone asked about the A back position for 2019. Um, holy smokes! Uh, <laughs> Uh, so you would lose. So you lose JJ after this year. You lose Quay. You lose Clinton. You lose. So you'd have Nate Cottrell as a senior. You would have Mari Jarrett as a junior, redshirt junior. You'd have Xavier Gant as a redshirt sophomore. And then Dante Smith and uh, Tajay Watley as 
whatever class they would be in at that point, if they play next year or not. That's sort of your basis of your A-backs right there. Um, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty far out. To, I mean, know. yeah, we don't know what uh, – Nate plays pretty well when he's in there. Amari yeah, Jarrett, I think that's really good. He's fast, too. Yeah, Amari Jarrett actually is a really good receiver out of the backfield. He has a lot of um, ability, actually. I think he's a guy who could turn into a player later in his career um, as he kind of matures. And then, uh, you know, I think Dante Smith's really interesting. I think Tajay's very, very – those two guys I'm very high on. I think they will have a chance to be really good once they kind of learn the scheme and what to do. And I, I think that they're, I think the talent level is certainly staying up to what it's been at A-back. I think people just get frightened. People were scared when Roddy Jones and Orwin Smith left. Oh, God, who's going to replace these guys? And it, there's always somebody that goes into those positions and makes plays. And I remember people whining when Georgia Tech signed Clinton Lynch. Like, what are you doing? Oh, yeah. He was kind of like the guy that uh... – that was kind of like the add-on so that we could get Miles Autry, but he turned out actually being the playmaker out of the two. Yeah, he, by the way, he was a guy they, they took like the first day in February, um, stolen from Georgia State. You know, I mean, uh, Quay Searcy, everyone wanted to play him on defense, wanted him to be a corner. So, you know, there's lots of athletes on the team right now. There's no telling kind of who's going to end up where or how all that's going to play out long term. I just know that, I like most of the guys that they have in that unit, and I think that there's some talent there, and I think that eventually you could even see, you know, a Jay Jones or someone like that, a quarterback, moved over to that position um, yeah. to to make plays as well. So, I mean, there's some possibilities there. And Dante looks pretty good so far in his senior year. He's, he's having a pretty good season. He rushed for, like, 350 yards earlier on this year. Yeah, no, I'm, I think it's um, – it's going to be interesting to kind of see uh, how that all plays out long term. I mean, he's high school, but he's still, I mean, he's, he's, he's looking like a good guy. So let me ask, uh, what do you think is going to happen on uh, Saturday, Jared? Um, I really like, I, I'm trying to be optimistic. I think, I mean, I, I think we're the better team. They they have a good defense, and a lot of people talk about Bronco Mendenhall uh, back at BYU kind of, being able to get the better of, of Paul Johnson. But, I mean, last year we I think we averaged like six and a half yards to carry, and the year before that was like five or four and a half. So, I mean, he's not really – he's not necessarily shutting down the offense like, like uh, Brent Venables or anything like that. I don't think it's really too much to worry about. I mean, they have a good defense for sure. But I think in the end of the day, I mean, and also something that we forget is that we had a defensive touchdown last year. Lance Austin had a pick six to kind of seal the game at the end. Um but overall, I think I think Georgia Tech's a better team. Uh, they're going to be hungry coming off of a loss. I think they know that they still have a lot to play for. Um, if you wanted a score prediction, I'd say somewhere in like the – just kind of like last year, around like 35, maybe 14, 17 type deal. Okay. I mean, last year was kind of an interesting game because they hit on several big plays in that game that kind of swung the momentum uh, offensively, and I think those opportunities will be there again. So, um, you know, uh, to me, I think that uh, it's a Georgia Tech win. Um, i trying to think. Of I, I think I told my buddy that covers Virginia who's going to be on uh, on the podcast next, Brad uh, Franklin from Cavs Corner. I think I told him 31-24. I think it'll be a little bit closer. Um, that's sort of sort of my gauge on it, you know. They haven't looked necessarily as good as they did in the beginning of the season the last two games. They only scored 14 points against Pitt and 10 against Boston College. And I'd like to think we have a better defense than them, but who knows? Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to kind of see who's the real team this weekend. So, uh, yeah, you know, we'll we'll uh, we'll see what happens. But I think we're gonna say goodbye to Jared, and we will bring on Brad here in a minute. And uh, any final thoughts, uh, Jared? Uh, I guess just appreciate everybody listening. I think I can speak for Kelly and I both when I say that we're having a lot of fun recording this and talking to y'all every week. So uh, thanks for everybody for listening. All right, thanks, Jared. I appreciate it. No problem. Now joining us on the podcast is my old friend Brad Franklin from Cavs Corner, the publisher for our Virginia Rivals site. And uh, Brad, 
It's been a unexpectedly good year for the Cavaliers. Um, I know when we talked before the season started, you were concerned about what kind of season they were going to have, and it seems like uh, things have gone pretty well, but they've kind of hit the skids the last couple of weeks. What's been going on? You know, it's funny how if you had told me before the season, hey, Virginia's going to be 5-1. Uh, and one. Not only I would have asked you uh, who your supplier was, but I probably would have also – thought, well, you know what, they're going to have a pretty good year. Um, and what's interesting now is that if you told fans before the season, I think, that the Virginia was going to go 5-7, and seven, they would have been ecstatic. Um, hey, look, that's more than twice the wins they had last year. That's a nice step in the right direction. You know, means they were close to bowl eligibility. But when you're 5-1 and one, and then you lose your most your, easily your two winnable games left on your schedule, and you are staring down the, the possibility of going 5-7, and seven, the narrative changes on you. And so it's funny when you were saying a second ago, you know, you, you said something about them having a good season. Yes, kind of. I mean, it's been an interesting season. Certainly, um, you know, has had some high watermarks that I didn't expect, but the, you know, a lot of the inconsistency uh, that I've seen seems consistent a lot with what I saw last year. And then that, in that case, in that way, it does not surprise me. I think they are at this point, a team week to week that you're not really sure what you're going to get. Um, they were able to sort of get out of their own way a couple times earlier this season. They had, you know, obviously some really nice offensive games against UConn and Boise State, but realistically in ACC play, they've been, you know, perfectly mediocre. And sometimes when you're mediocre, you make a couple plays and you win. And sometimes when you're mediocre, you miss a couple plays and get blown out. And that's kind of been the story sort of their last four weeks. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting game. You know, uh, Paul Johnson struggled against Bronco Mendenhall. Even last year, that was that was not a particularly clean win down in Atlanta. And then, um, but overall against Virginia, he's done pretty well. He's six and three, and he has two of the like four wins in school history in Charlottesville, which has kind of been a nightmare spot for the Jackets for some reason. So, I, I think it's going to be interesting to kind of see. We're going to see a little bit more. I, I feel like there's sort of a lot of fraudulent football going on right now in the ACC Coastal, kind of across the board. Whether you, To me, the only really good team I've seen this year, and it's been on TV, is Virginia Tech. And then I think everybody else is sort of in, jammed in this middle spot. Um, you know, obviously uh, Duke and probably North Carolina are in that sort of bottom half. But it seems like anyone else, it's kind of an open season on who can beat each other and so I think it should be a pretty interesting game from that perspective. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think it's funny. Bronco said something earlier this week. I think he he genuinely – he's a nerd, I mean, in a lot, in a lot of ways. He's just a nerd. And so he <laughs> likes facing a triple option. He just does. He likes he likes the challenge. He likes any time that something is a little out of the ordinary and he's got he's to do something a little different. Um, quite frankly, I think it's – you know, for him, it's a throwback sort of style that he – you know, I think of a – of a day gone by. Bronco definitely seems, seems like the kind of guy who really likes the way things used to be. Uh, you know, he's, <laughs> he's kind of, that kind of fits his character. So he made a comment Monday uh, that he, you know, he really, he really kind of enjoys facing a three, uh, excuse me, a triple option team. He really enjoys the challenge and he looks forward to it. And so <laughs> Doug Dowdy on the teleconference yesterday asked uh, PJ if, uh, <laughs> about that and what he, what his thoughts were. And Paul had what the, the most Paul Johnson-y response to it that I think I've ever seen. He, he sort of, he's like, well, I mean, I mean, I don't know, I guess, uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited to face three, four teams. I don't know. Um, it just, it was, <laughs> it was sort of the most Paul Johnson, you know, kind of humor ever, but it makes, it, it, it's funny. You meant, you, you, you made a good point a second ago about, you know, last year's game in Atlanta was not very clean. Had it not been for what, like three plays? Yeah, that was you know, the difference I mean, in the game. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't want to. I don't want to go Jeff Bezdelic on it, right? Anybody who remembers when he was at Wake Forest, he'd be like, "Yeah, but if it wasn't for that twenty to two run, you know, we were right in it." Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like you have you have you know those three plays. They still count, but it, it overall, I think, for a team that largely was was playing a new system and also playing obviously the hardest offense you know, in college football to sort of prepare for on a short notice um, for them to, to, to play as well as they did, you know, those three plays or whatever, notwithstanding, I, I think that does sort of bode well. And it does kind of, um, you know, it, it does sort of show that Bronco does have a, a good feel for what you need to do. What I found super interesting was I asked Quinn Blanding after the pit game, you know, now that, now, you know, so you got to go from these two losses and prepare for Georgia tech. What's, you, you know, what can you even you know, what can you even uh, base 
you know, any of that preparation on because you went from essentially facing Pitt's offense to facing, uh, excuse me, facing BC's offense, facing Pitt's offense. And there are a lot of similarities. Yeah. Are there, is there anything similar between those two and George Tech? And, and Quinn said, actually, even though they don't run wing T stuff, a lot of some sort of assignment stuff that you have to have square against a pit that you actually, it, it does sort of translate. And I found that super interesting because as somebody who's never actually prepared to face a triple option offense, it, it doesn't seem to compute for me, but I'm not going to, you know, he's the all-time leading tackler at UVA. I'm going to take his word for it. So in, in a lot of ways, I think that Broncos system and what they do, um, it'll be interesting to see against, uh, you know, Marshall and, and, and the guys that the Jackets have this year. Cause I think that offense is, it looks pretty good to me, but my bigger thing that I'm looking forward to at this game is to just see Virginia playing um, a defense that is just solid across the board. When I, when I look at Georgia tech, what I see is a team that, you know, they're not going to put a lot of pressure on you. They're not going to, you know, create a lot of havoc. They're not going to turn you over a bunch, but you know what they're not going to do. They're not going to shoot themselves in the foot. Um, you know, they're not going to over pursue. They're not going to kill themselves. You're going to have to go out and beat them. And I think that's exactly the sort of test that the Cavaliers need to pass because where they were earlier in the season offensively, they were in just a some completely different place. The, the deep ball was working between Kirk Ben Kirk and, and Andre Lavroni. Uh, that really opened up things across the middle and uh, it certainly opened up the running game. They've got, you know, in Jordan Ellis, I think a running back they can ride if they're, you know, conscious of it and they, and they, and they make a point to, to commit to it, but they abandoned the run so quickly. Uh, these last couple of weeks and really in some ways too um, didn't, didn't rely on it enough in the, in the two wins over Carolina and Duke. So I'm as, as, as interesting as I think the angle between Bronco and Paul is um, I think the bigger thing, at least for this game is going to be Virginia's offense. Can the Cavaliers finally find some sense of rhythm? Can they get back to being even related to the team that I saw earlier in the season that put, you know, those five wins on the board? Yeah, you know, it's been interesting. I've seen a little bit of Virginia this year. The one play that kind of sticks out in my mind is um, with Ben Kurt. He'd, like, try to th- throw the ball to his running back who was, like, a foot away from him. And I think he got picked off or something. It was probably, like, one of the weirdest plays I've seen this season. Yeah, he was rolling He was rolling out of bounds, and he wanted to try to get the ball. Uh, he was looking to throw it away, and he's running to the – to at Scott Stadium, so he's running toward the Virginia sideline, and the ball is in his right hand so toward the defense. And he's looking to throw it away. He's running flat straight to the sideline, and he, instead of rotating his hips and, and getting his shoulders right so he can throw it out of bounds, he sort of – the best – it's almost like he flicked a remote to somebody. Yeah, right? it was, it was kind of like a pitch almost. Like, yeah, yeah and, but it was a pitch, but he was, he, was, he was sideways. And so he sort of throws it to uh, – to um, I, I think it was Jordan Ellis yeah, I think that so was too. downfield. But honestly, I don't think he was actually trying to throw it to anybody. I think he was trying to throw it out of bounds because he did the same thing. Yeah, that's thing. what it looked like. He was trying to throw it out of bounds, but it was like he just yeah, heaved yeah. it instead of – And it just kind of floated in the middle of the – on the sideline, and the, and, the, and the defender was like, oh, okay, thanks. And he did – but he did it again against Pittsburgh, <laughs> um, which continues to be – I just can't even – like there are a multitude of ways – um, and, 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 and this might be a, a good time to mention this. There are a multitude of ways to throw the ball away. Kirk has a tendency to, to lose track of what, um, of what he's supposed to do. His pocket presence has always sort of been an issue for him, but it's especially true. Last year he hurt his non-throwing shoulder against UConn, and he just kind of wasn't the same. So any sort of pressure seemed to make him feel dramatically more under duress. And he's injured that shoulder again. I'm not exactly sure when it happened, but it's clearly happened, and he's just not the same in the pocket. And so I think for UVA offensively, what they need to do is roll him out as much as they can. Um, they need to, to – to, if they could go away from this fad in college football, which I continue to not understand, which is to run the ball, handing to a running back who's literally standing next to you. Um, I, I, I really think getting him under center and allowing the running game to sort of be a little bit more – um, smash mouth in a lot of ways than um, draws and counters and stuff like that. I, I think that would help him out a lot, but it, it's going to be interesting if Georgia tech can get to him a little bit early in the game. I, I think that can rattle him. And so far in the last few games, he just hasn't seemed like he can find his comfort level in the pocket. He, he just never seems um, he never seems, he never seems like he, he, he has a good feel for what's coming next. You watch quarterbacks and the way they sort of just naturally move with the pressure 
Ben Kirk will just, will just all out bail it. I mean, he will just spin and try to run away. Um, and a lot of times that ends up being a, a big negative uh, for the Cavaliers for, you know, for obvious reasons. But ultimately, I think that's going to be a storyline this game. Can Georgia Tech get pressure on him and, and rattle him? Because he's a completely different quarterback when you do. Yeah, I mean, he's had back-to-back weeks with interceptions. Um, you know, really against some of the better defensive teams he's played this year. He's pretty much every decent defense he's played against, he's thrown a pick this year. So that's kind of something I'm, I'm very curious to see. You know, Georgia Tech does a nice job of coming up with those balls when they get an opportunity. Um I think that, that that's an area where they need to make a play, give the offense a short field. Um, it's it's curious uh, to see, you know, kind of what happens here for Virginia. I mean, they're both these teams are kind of at a turning point. Georgia Tech still theoretically in the ACC Coastal, and actually Virginia sort of is as well, um, assuming both teams went. If you could win out either team, I think you – actually have a decent shot at getting to Charlotte still as surprising as that is to say obviously the road for Virginia a little bit harder with uh, both Miami and Virginia Tech um, after Georgia Tech so you know it's going to be interesting to see I mean Virginia you know honestly in a lot of ways the next one of these next two games they have to win to go to a bowl game I think because you're going to get a situation where you're playing at Miami and against Virginia Tech to, to get that six win, that's not a situation you want to be in. So they either beat Georgia Tech or beat Louisville and get get themselves at least into a bowl game, which would show some nice progress in the uh, what second year under Bronco. Well, and the, and the thing too that's problematic, Kelly, is that if they don't do it this year, they're going to be in a. I mean, they're going to be in a world of hurt next year. Uh, Quinn Blaining is a senior. Micah Kaiser is a senior. Andrew Brown is a senior. Um, they're going to have. Ben Kirk's two grad senior. transfers. Yeah. Well, Ben Kirk's a senior. Two grad transfers on the on the offensive line are seniors. Um, they do have some young offensive line talent, and one of somebody's going to have to play this week that hasn't played. Um, they lost uh, left tackle Jack English, who was also a senior, to a patella injury at Pittsburgh on the first drive. Uh, not going to require surgery, Bronco said this week, but he will not play Sunday. Excuse me, Saturday. So that means they're going to be without their starting left tackle. When they do that, they move center Dylan Rankinsmeyer, who's a redshirt freshman, out to left tackle, and they move guard Jake Feeler into center, which allows, I believe, R.J. Proctor, who was a redshirt sophomore, to play at right guard. If that's the offensive line, you know, that's that, that's a different story for this week. But overall, you're talking about at least three seniors from an offensive line that really, frankly, wasn't that great. Uh, you're talking about losing Donnie Dowling, losing Andre Lavroni. Um, they're they're going to have substantial losses across the board. If they don't get that bowl game this year, they're sure as heck not getting it next year. Um, when most of Broncos guys are are, are going to be fully entrenched, you know they'll have a few pieces left over from the London days. But realistically, next year will be as close to to Broncos real team um, as it kind of gets because they have had a lot of kids who either washed out, um, transferred, what have you. Um, but the quarterback situation is especially dire. I mean, they don't have they, they were forced to use Lindell Stone uh, in the loss to BC because Kirk, Ben Kirk's helmet came off. Juan Thornhill was hurt at cornerback, and they had to use Devontae Cross, who was their backup quarterback. I, I guess they, their Wildcat quarterback, but he's also on both. Uh, he's a backup at wide receiver and a backup at cornerback. So because they were thin at corner, Cross was going to have to play and play substantially. So they had to just basically trot Lindell Stone out there for the first time in his career, and he just did not look. Uh, he did not look like the future of that position. So I, I don't see any real scenario where Lindell Stone goes into the spring next year and, and dramatically changes things. So if they don't get that bowl game this year, it, it's going to be even harder in, in, in 2018. And so in a, a lot of ways, I don't think that, the, that these kids feel that pressure, but the program certainly should um, because these, there's a lot of guys who are not going to be eligible um, next year that they're going to, you know, they're going to miss and miss um, substantially. So I, I, I agree with you. I think they have to figure out a way to get one of these next two and I wonder if they are, if they do, like if they were to win Saturday, you're right. They are still technically in the, in the coastal race. They do have Miami and Virginia Tech still on the schedule. So whichever one of those teams wins Saturday night, you know, if they, they do sort of control their own destiny in a weird sort of way. But if they win that game Saturday and they, they can get the, the bowl game piece, that monkey off their back, you know, I wonder what this team can look like because early in the year, like they were super excited about the smallest things. And they celebrated and there was energy, and that's just not been the case the past couple of weeks. They've gotten tight. 
the bowl game thing is certainly, you know, it's 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 on their minds. Bronco went from you know not talking about it to now this week deciding, you know, what, we gotta we gotta just it, it, you know acknowledge that it's there, deal with it, and move forward. He's hoping they can that can kind of get back to get them back to the kind of mindset they had earlier in the year. But realistically, if it doesn't happen these next two, um, I, I don't even know what their nerves and what their uh, mindset looks like in the last two of the season, considering you know all the factors that'll be at play at that point. Well, you know, the one big benefit for Bronco next year is the super soft out-of-conference schedule that they have set up with the Richmond Spiders, Ohio Bobcats, and the Liberty Flames, and a trip to Indiana, which is not exactly the toughest uh, FBS team to play, a P5 team. So, you know, I mean, it'll be it's going to be interesting to see how all that stuff plays out down the line for him. You know, recruiting is obviously you know something we both um, kind of make our money on, and in a lot of ways that's kind of been a challenge uh, so far. It seems like for Bronco men and all. I, you know, it's funny. I was looking at the depth chart and like, oh, I remember this kid. He was dumped by this school, and you know, like Jamari Peacock was committed to like five different schools. I see him as like the backup tailback. Like, there's a lot of funny kind of stuff that I see as I look. At this Tyler Fannin was another guy that was kind of all over the place as a recruit. Um, but, yeah, you talked about that left tackle thing, and that's pretty eye-opening when you have a depth chart with three guys, all of which are freshmen, at your left tackle spot in an offense that likes to throw the ball a little bit. That just seems like kind of a recipe with a quarterback that has had it, both injury problems, shell shock problems, and um, turnover bugs. So, I, it seems to me like that that's going to be the area that's going to get tested down the stretch for Virginia. Yeah. I feel like in a lot of ways, if you look at it, they, they've played three freshmen, three true freshmen running backs this year. Right. And running backs, not a position where they have needed that many guys. Sure. They've played, they haven't had, they haven't had to play a true freshman offensive lineman, but that's going to happen this weekend. Um, because I don't think that from a, just from a depth perspective, they can't trot out five guys and have those five guys also fill in all the other sort of roles that offensive linemen have to play on the various special teams units. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, I think a lot of this sort of comes back to two things. One is they don't have the type of quarterback that seems to fit the system they want to run. What they really need and what they prospered with at BYU was a, tr- was a dual threat quarterback who could both take hits and throw the ball. And, that does sound like a little bit of a unicorn, but in a, in a guy like a Taysom Hill, they had a rugged, almost running back type of guy who also could throw the ball. Well, quite. I mean, um, really, I mean, and this will be blasphemy for Virginia people to hear, but the guy they that would be the the ultimate fit for their offense is like a Logan Thomas, like yeah, a, exactly, a big, yeah, guy a big huge, bowl. strong. Yep, yeah. exactly. Yeah, that's that's what they need, and what they don't need is a traditional pocket passer, which is primarily what Ben Kirk is. Now, the other problem I think that Virginia has is that they have no offensive identity. And folks who have watched, you know, watched that game last year will watch this one Saturday. Like, a lot of times Virginia's offense seems like a series of sentences and not a paragraph. Um, (laughs) They're just a bunch of things that happen, but you don't see any way that it all fits together. Defensively, they have a mindset. They have an identity. They know who they are. It fits the program as a whole. It fits Bronco or not given – you know, give 400%, you know, whatever. Um, it, it kind of fits his personality. The offense is just not that. I think that if this thing goes south, I wouldn't be surprised to see some changes on the staff, however it shakes out. But to have a an offense that is built around almost in a, in a BC kind of pit role where you're bigger, stronger, um, you're looking to, to make hay with tight ends, play action pass, running the ball, that's the kind of stuff that fits – Bronco that fits what UVA does everywhere else in the program except for on the offensive end. This everything is on, on the outs, and you're trying to challenge team sideline to sideline. You know, you're you're just trying to you know bubble screens, and that's just not who this team should be, and it's certainly not who this team is. And I think that the issue at quarterback, the issue at left tackle, the issue that they have you know throughout the roster sort of not just uh, exemplifies it, but it exacerbates it. And I feel like in a lot of ways. If they, like I said before, if they don't get it done this year, they're certainly in a world of hurt for next year. But I do think Broncos doing a good thing in terms of building the roster the way he thinks that it needs to be built, and certainly the way 
um, that it has to be in order for some some semblance of succession, succession to happen in various positions. You know, it's fascinating to me, the other thing, and it was the first thing I noticed on Tuesday when I got the the depth chart and the notes from Virginia. They have – so most teams will have, like – you might have, like, your 3-4 defense, right, and then maybe you have a nickel back or whatever the sub packages you play against spread teams. The offense has seven position players listed as starters. Like, they have four different receiver positions, a slot back, a, you know, a fullback, a tight end. Like, it's a lot of stuff, like, for for an offense. And really, having watched some of these games, I haven't even seen some of these guys on the field a whole lot. So, like, it, it's just fascinating to me that they're so multiple that they feel like they have to put that stuff out there and – um it's yeah it seems like there's a confused identity and that's something georgia tech will try to take advantage of i think this weekend is you know georgia tech can kind of line up and play their base defense they they can play their 425 and stop the run against a lot of teams um i i feel like that's sort of something that just kind of works for them so going into a game like this where you play a team that likes to it, it run a lot of eye candy, a lot of motion, a lot of substitutions, odd formations, that kind of thing. I don't know that when you have as many older players as Georgia Tech has on the defense side of the ball, it's going to phase them that much. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think one of Virginia's biggest problems, and I think we, we can wrap it up on this, I, I feel like it's it, – it almost feel, feels like at times Virginia's substituting for the sake of substituting. Um, you know, Alameda Zacchaeus is by far their best offensive player – and yet they're third and fours, third and threes. He's not on the field. Yeah. Um, because they've gotten some personnel group. It's like they're so focused on, okay, we want to achieve, achieve this objective. What group of players can do this? And they, they don't focus on, Hey, we need to be able to do multiple things with our multiple groups. It's almost like they get into such tunnel vision that like they, you'll see them. They'll, they'll, they'll have all these wholesale changes. Um, at wide receiver or, you know, tight ends coming on, going off, running backs coming on, going off. They're all for specific plays. And if you're paying attention as a defensive coordinator, you pick up on those tendencies. You know when number 44, Tanner Cowley, comes in the game and they put him out wide and then they put him in motion, it's going to be a run because he's coming in to block. Yeah. Like, they pick up on those tendencies if I'm picking up on them in a press box. And I feel like <laughs> Virginia's so focused on trying to get the right personnel in. There's a reason that I think – you know, Georgia said, what is the line now? 10. I think that's, that's totally fair. I won't, I won't be surprised if Virginia wins this game because at this point, not much in the season seems to surprise me, but I, I can't tell you that I, I expect anything, you know, uh, really positive for the Cavaliers because consistency continues to be a problem. And this is the one program you don't want to be inconsistent against. Yeah. I um, mean, Paul Johnson, that's just the long and short of it. Yeah. They'll just sit on the ball if they can, if they're moving the ball at all, they can, They've had a 20-play drive this year, 18, 15 plays, take up six minutes off the clock. So that's the stuff that you got to stay away from if you're Virginia in this game. And uh, kind of, How do you see this playing out, Brad? I mean, kind of a, a little loose prediction. I, I told you, I think, 31-24. I feel like that might be a little on the high end of the scoring probably. But kind of how do, what do you see? Well, at this point, look, if Virginia scores 21 points this season, they win. If they don't, they lose. Um, I, I kind of feel like to get close to it, if I'm going to pick it, I, like I said, I, I won't be surprised if UVA wins, but I also uh, fully expect that, that Georgia Tech's offense uh, makes enough plays and that Virginia's defense makes enough mistakes. Um, without seeing Virginia's offense playing with any sort of uh, rhythm lately, I just I don't have any um, real faith that it's going to change this weekend against a team I don't think does much to kill itself. And I don't think Virginia's in a place right now where the Cavaliers can make enough plays. So, I'd give Georgia Tech a you know a ten point whether it's thirty one twenty one something like that feels about right. Um, it just seems like to me the Cavaliers are in need of a uh, in need of uh, of a place to get right, but I don't think it's this weekend against this team. If you flip the weeks and they were playing at Louisville on Saturday, I feel a lot more comfortable about Virginia getting back on track, and then I think I'd feel a lot more comfortable about the Cavaliers and the, the, against the Yellow Jackets. But this weekend, this team right now, I just I don't think Virginia's there yet. I think they. You know they're going to lose, and it's it's not going to be terrible, and it's it's going to be a competitive game. But I think it's one that the Jackets end up winning. 
All right. Well, thanks, Brad. I appreciate you joining us uh, this week on the Jackets Online podcast. And uh, for Jared Hallis, and I'm Kelly Quinlan, and that's Brad Franklin from Cavs Corner. You can follow him on Twitter at Cavs Corner. And we will be back with you next week as it's Virginia Tech week. So uh, thanks for listening.